The following sermon is by Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Steve. Okay, church, you can take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John. While you're turning to the Gospel of John, I want to dismiss our children for Children's Church. You can meet your workers in the back. The Gospel of John that's in the New Testament. So, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter number 1. Let me read for you verse number 14 through verse number 18 today. John chapter number 1, verse number 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me is higher rank than I. For He existed before Me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were revealed through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And then let me read for you verse number 14 again. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Join me in a word of prayer, would you? Our Father, we do come to this time together. We thank You for our good music, opportunity to fellowship and give and pray, our Sunday school hour this morning. Lord, we thank You for this time around Your Word, and we pray that You would bless both the reading of the Word and the proclamation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray now that you'd help me to think clearly and to communicate in a clear manner. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would bring unbelievers to faith in Jesus. And I pray for believers in this room that we would draw near to Christ and we would be conformed to His image today. And we will love you and bless you for it is in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. So as we follow along and we continue in our series on the Catechism, the question for this week is, what sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? All of us have strayed. We've all gone our own way. The Bible teaches that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. We find ourselves as unbelieving sinners. And so what sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back into a right relationship with the Lord? And the answer to that today is one who is truly human and truly God. We need a Savior who is genuinely human, who can identify with us, who is one of us, who knows us intimately inside and out. And yet we need that Redeemer not simply to be human, but to be divinity as well too, to be God, very God. Why? So that He can identify with us in our condition and at the same time bring something to us beyond us and beyond our condition, His righteousness and His holiness. And there we would get the verse from the New Testament that He that knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in 
Him. Today we're going to find ourselves, uh, you might find in your bulletin all of those verses, 14 to verse 18. But this week as I was working through it, I just could not get myself past verse number 14. And I thought, sure as the world, if I try to preach all of these verses, verse 14 to verse 18, we would be here until 3 or 4 this afternoon. And I would be preaching to myself, my wife, and two kids. And uh, I, they might not even stay if I preach that long. So we want to look at verse number 14 today and simply take it apart. Look back with me if you would. It's broken into simple, three simple statements, but that are immensely deep with the truth of the Word of God. Look what it says here. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Now there's the three points today. We'll break those apart in a moment. And then the rest of the verse is building upon that. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What a simple verse. I'm reminded of Hugh Palmer who said that this verse is Christmas in four words. The Word became flesh. It is the central mystery of the entire Gospel of John contained in this one verse that the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us and we saw His glory. The glory is of the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. And so let's break this verse apart in three segments today. First of all, if you're keeping notes, I would simply say this, God became one of us. Now, brothers and sisters, those of you that are in this room today, please put your thinking caps on. Please make notes. Please be careful here. This week as I was putting these points together, it took me all the way until Friday afternoon before I was even willing to put down on the computer screen point number one, that God became one of us because we must be so careful to make sure that we accurately represent what the scriptures say. Almost every heresy that has ever happened in all of the history of the church has come from making a mistake over the identity of Jesus Christ. There have been those who have pushed the humanity of Jesus so far that He did not become deity, that He wasn't really God. He was just merely a man. and He was a holy man. He was a good man. He was a righteous teacher, but He was not God. And all of that is heresy in that direction. But brothers and sisters, there has also been heresy that has gone in the other direction that has emphasized the deity of Christ so far to the neglect of His humanity. And they said, well, He wasn't really a man. He just looked like a man. He just appeared in that kind of form. But the God of heaven could never take on and never assume and never go into the role of humanity. And we want to be ever so careful to not fall into either one of those ditches. But we want to say that we affirm that the Son of God, the living Lord Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human in one person with two natures unmixed and thereby can save those that put their trust in Him. And so I say very carefully today, the first point is this, God became one of us. This week as I was reading, I was thinking about that and looking back at the verse. Look what it says, and the Word became flesh. 
Do you know that there are still some Christian traditions where when they read this verse, the entire congregation will read it on their knees because they are understanding that the very God that flung all of the stars into space, the God that made all of the oceans and all of the land and all of the animals and the air that we're breathing, the God of eternity becomes one of us. There is no religion in the world like Christianity. We do not serve a Greek God who simply took on some form of a man to understand or to, to, to just be a part. No, we have the God of heaven who comes and assumes human nature so that He might identify with us. Let me walk through this verse with you a little bit, this first part. Notice that it says, and the Word became flesh. Now, in your Bible it might say, and the Word. The Word here, first of all, is uh, and or now. It is a new segment in the Scripture. Verse 1 all the way through verse number 13 is speaking about the Logos or the Word of God as the second person of the Trinity and the entire force that creates all of the world. And yet the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, comes down into the human flesh and now in verse number 14, something new happens for us, brothers and sisters. The God of the world comes down to us. Now the word, this is the word logos, it means the message, the one with authority. It is the second person of the Godhead. Look back at verse number one. In the beginning was the word, that is Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You, you could translate this, when the beginning began, they were both there looking face to face. God the Father and God the Son, both deity. And by the time you get to verse number 14, this deity, this Lord Jesus Christ, this second person of the Trinity, the very Word that created the world, now comes down to us. And the Word became flesh. You see where it says the word there for flesh? That is not the normal translation for uh, the word for humanity or mankind. Uh, the uh, Apostle John here, he could have used this word, anthropos. Some of you that have been to college, maybe you study the word anthropology. That is the normal word for humanity. It doesn't say, and the word became anthropos. The word here is the word sarks. It is the word flesh. It means meat, skin, bones. The reason why is the Apostle John looks down and he says, I don't want you to make any mistake. I don't want you to just think that he appeared in human form. I want you to understand that when God came into this world in the incarnation, he came as flesh and blood just like you. He assumed humanity. The Latin translation here is carne. Some of you might leave here today and go get some chili con carne. Chili with meat. You see, the, the apostle wants you to understand that Jesus came into this world, the second person. Christ comes into this world as real humanity. You could touch Him. You could feel Him as Thomas did. You could put your hands in His wounds. You could put your hands in His side. He touched lepers and healed them. He gave people hugs and held on to them. They touched Him and virtue went out from Him. God comes into the world to identify with us in human form. He became one of us. He is fully human and fully divine. He loses nothing of His deity, but He takes on humanity. 
Notice it is the same word in verse number 3. Look back at verse number 3. All things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being. It is that nothing became that didn't come without Him. And then you go to verse number 14 and you understand that He became that which first became through Him. Maybe I could explain it like this. I was trying to think of the best way to illustrate God coming down to be one of us. And uh, the thought came to my mind, has anybody ever seen that show, Undercover Boss? Ever seen that? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn the illustration upside down. The incarnation is not like Undercover Boss. <laughs> I, I, I was trying my best to figure out a way to explain it to you. But if you've ever watched the show, they take a fledgling company or, uh, and they, they take the guy at the top or the woman at the top and uh, they, they sit behind a desk. They have a lot of money. they got a great house and all these kinds of things. But they don't know what's going on down on the common level, down on the, down, down on the assembly line floor. They don't know what's going on out in the field. And then, so they take this, this boss and they put a mustache on him or give him long hair. They, they make him up. They dress him up and they send him out in the field. And there is the very boss of the company with all of the money, the CEO, and he's digging ditches or cleaning pots and pans or doing whatever it is down on the lower level where everybody else is. And at the end of the show, you know, he gets an idea of what it's like to serve in that actual world. And, uh, and he's, he's off of his perch. She's off of her perch. And she's down there where the real people are. But at the end of the show, at the end of the show, the boss always takes off the mustache. The extensions always come out. They always return to their office. And they dole out prizes. And it's sweet, and it's fun, and it's good, and it's joyful, but that person goes back to their lowly life, and that boss goes back to her house or his house with all of the money. The incarnation is not like that. God loved us enough to come down to this world and not to put on a mustache or extensions that He would eventually take off. He came down here to assume into Himself our very humanity. That He might live His life not only to be our example, but to be our substitute on the cross and die for us. And the Word became flesh. I was thinking this week, and brothers and sisters, please bear with me. This is a tough text. I was trying to wrestle through it and work through it. And, and, and I was thinking, why this plan of salvation? Why this plan and, and, and not another? I mean, I understand what we understand through theology that the logical and the intellectual answer is that He must have a body to identify with us and because we have sinned, He must be both God and humanity to die for us. I get all of that. I know what the books say. I've read it. But behind all of that, what is the motivation that lies behind? Why could God have not written it in the sky? Why could God not just have looked down upon people and say, believe on me with a voice out of heaven? I'll tell you the motivation that lies behind the incarnation is this. God so loved us.
May you sit in this room today. I want you to understand that you are loved with the infinite, great majesty and love of the God of heaven who cared enough about His own glory and your salvation to come into the world to be one of us. I'm not sure what your week looked like. You might be in here today and in the corner and recesses of your mind, you, you may not be sure if there is any music behind the door of despair in your life. But I want you to leave here today knowing that there is one God in all of the world and that He loved you enough to come into this world to identify with you. He cares. He loves you. He's with you. He sent His Son for you. He loves you. That's the kind of God that we have. The God that will become one of us. Please do not leave here today thinking that God came down here and took on our sin nature. No. God came down in human form. And what we could not do, keep God's laws, God did through His Son perfectly. And what we could not do, sacrifice for our own sins, atone for our own problems, He did by going to the cross and raising again on the third day. Jesus loves you. Will you just let that break through in your mind right now? Jesus loves you. God comes to redeem us. Think about that for a moment. The motivation standing behind the entire cosmic plan of salvation is the love of the living God of heaven. Would you think with me just for one moment? It's not just that He came down to be one of us. As if He comes down to redeem humanity at its highest point. He comes down to redeem humanity at their lowest point. God doesn't come into the world to redeem neutral human beings. God doesn't come down here to redeem those who are living a good life and we just need a leg up. We just need to make a better decision. God comes into the world and He comes down to the poorest, worst sinners in the world and He says, you hate me, you're the enemy of God, you're running far from me, but I still come because I love you. Because I care. Because I don't want you to go out into an eternity of darkness away from me. I want you to live forever with eternity with the Father. And He loves us. He loves us in our sins. The Bible says that while we were still, still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ dies for us in our worst condition. You don't have to pretty up this week. You don't have to put on the right clothes. You don't have to live the best life this week. You simply have to come to Jesus just where you are. And lay down your weapons and say, will you save me? Will you change me? I need you. 
Well, of course, God never leaves anybody exactly where they are. Yes, He'll meet you where you are and transform you in the image of Christ. But what I want you to understand is that Jesus meets you in your inability. This same passage says that we were born not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but by Him. The reason why Jesus comes into the world is because left to our own devices, not one human being in the world would ever choose God. Ever. And the only hope you have is for God to look down in His marvelous grace and love and say, I'll send my Son to redeem you. Let me make two more quick points. God became one of us. And God is with us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word dwelt here is the same word in the Old Testament for the word tabernacle or the word temple found in the book of Exodus. But you'll notice that at the end of this chapter in verse number 51, Jesus identifies Himself going farther back than the book of Exodus. He goes all the way back to Jacob's ladder in the book of Genesis chapter number 28. You remember that? uh, Jacob is on the run. He finds himself there in Bethel. And that night he has a vision of a ladder going up and down from heaven and the angels ascending and descending. Jesus makes reference at the end of John 1. And he identifies himself with Jacob's ladder and he identifies himself with the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Jesus, not the tabernacle or the temple or any house of worship, is the primary link between heaven and earth. In John chapter 2, Jesus will go on to identify himself and say, I am the temple. I am the tabernacle. It's the same word used in verse number 14 all the way at the end of the book of uh, Revelation. When all things are made right, the Bible says that the new Jerusalem is coming down out, out of heaven and God is tabernacling with His people. It is a reference to the very presence of God. And Jesus says, one day, back there in Genesis, there was, a, there was a touch point between heaven and earth, Jacob's ladder. And in the book of Exodus, there was a tabernacle, a touch point between heaven and earth where only the high priest would go in and meet with God once a year. And then it moved to the temple. And in the New Testament, all of these things where God would meet with His people and Jesus says, I am the temple. And if you have me, you have the tabernacle. You say, how's that good news? How's that good news? Well, John chapter 4, Jesus is thirsty. And He's at a well. And there's, our children have been dismissed, there's a harlot, for lack of a better term, who comes to the well all alone. And she's been married five times and she's living with somebody now. And she's an outcast and a half-breed. And she says, well, I can't worship in Jerusalem for there's, there's no temple there and I can't worship around for uh, I, there's no sons of Abraham here. And Jesus says, and now is the time for true worshipers to worship God in spirit and in truth. 
And Jesus goes on to tell her that if you'll trust me, I'll give you rivers of living water springing up from the inside. You see, brothers and sisters, you need not be in Jerusalem today. You need not be at the most fancy place of worship in all the world. If you put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus, you are the residing place of the presence of Jesus Christ. Will you think with me for a moment? Where's the most beautiful, most holy place of worship you've ever been? How many of you are thinking right here at Emmanuel Baptist Church? A few years ago, Connie and I were on vacation in London, and uh, uh, we had the opportunity to go to St. Paul's Cathedral. And for me, it was the most beautiful house of worship I've ever been in in my life. I mean, it was astounding. It was incredible. The architecture itself is of such that it causes your eyes and your heart to look upward. It reminds you of the glory of the living God. Just absolutely beautiful. Contrast that. Sometimes I find myself in Eastern Europe, I've been in, 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 in Romania, and I've been in a little, uh, uh, just a little shack of a church out in the middle of a village somewhere with a few people gathered together, uh, no air condition, no carpet, no nothing, I, I mean, you know, just barely walls. Is one more holy than the other? The holiness and the power come not by the building that you worship in. It comes by the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in the believers that are there. You can have a $30 million building and the absence of Christ and have nothing. You can have no building at all and the presence of Christ with His people and have the most holy place in all the world. So Steve, how does that relate to us today? God with us. Let me just give you a word of application. The Spirit of Christ Jesus is living in your body now. You see, the most wonderful thing about the Spirit of God coming into the world after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension is that it's not just these apostles, but now it's possible for every believer around the world to be the very tabernacle of God, God's very presence in you. If God resides in you right now, what kind of touch point this past week, what kind of contact did you have with Him? If only I were in St. Paul's, if only I were in a beautiful cathedral, if only it were Sunday, if only I was here, if only everything was made right, I could worship, I could pray, I could give, I could do everything, I could have church. Do you have church every day of your life with Jesus? He's in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Why do you think that's some sort of ethereal language? Why do you think that's so metaphorical as if not to be true? Brothers and sisters, Christ is in your body. Now worship Him this week. Talk with Him. He's there. 
He's right with you all the time, in the car with you, at your computer, with your family, eating dinner together. When you pick your nose in the bathroom and nobody's around, Jesus is with you. And y'all are all going to be pious as if you don't do that every once in a while. Jesus is with you. Now what, what about your life? Why don't you just apply? Help, help me preach today. You apply it in your own life. What about your life would change this week if you could be a little bit more conscious that He's there? I, I know. Your mind, first of all, goes to, well, I, man, I know some of the sin I would stop. And yes, of course, absolutely. You see, I, t- I told a Sunday school class, I might have told y'all, you know, listen, the, the thing about the presence of Christ is this. When you, literally, when you sin you have to ask Jesus to go to the next room. Do you understand that? Jesus doesn't want to be around your sin. So when you sin, you have to excuse yourself from the presence of Christ, and you don't want to do that. So of course, there's things in your life that you would stop and sins that you would stop. If you are a little bit more conscious about that, you might speak to people a little bit differently. You might act a little bit differently. You might show kindness and more grace to people if you knew that the Spirit of the living Christ was with you in that moment. And that might be on the negative side, but can I ask you on the positive side, are there not fears and anxieties anxieties and worries and hurts and pains and sufferings and things that are going on in your life that nobody else knows about, that you could talk to Him if you were a little bit more conscious that He was right there. He's there. I I use this all the time. I've said it here a hundred times, but G.K. Chesterton said, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It's that it's been left untried. And the reason why church and Christianity and such things are more duty and tradition than they are vibrant realities is because you do not actually put to the test what the Bible says. You ought to leave here today and make up your mind that you are going to be that oddball that actually tries to talk to Jesus tomorrow on your way to work. Out loud. Why don't you reserve a seat for Him in the passenger seat? And when you sit down tomorrow to drive, why don't you say, now Lord, I invite you to sit in this car with me. And tell him what's going on in your life. But you know what? You know that person that you, don't, you try to avoid conversations with because they're a motor mouth and they never ask you about you. They just run on about all of their life. Sometimes Jesus thinks the same thing about you. So talk a little bit to Jesus and then be quiet the rest of the way to work. Listen to what's going on in your mind. Talk to him about those scenarios and those situations. Ask for His insight and His wisdom and His discernment. Delight in Jesus. Are you okay in being in a room by yourself for a little while? Oh, my mom's in here saying, oh, yes. (laughs) But you know what? Truth of the matter is, most of us are scared to be by ourselves for a little while. Are you afraid that God's not really there? In the darkness and the silence, He is. Just give Him time and talk to Him. This Bible and this verse teach us that Christ and His Spirit 
come to tabernacle, to dwell, to live with us. God, uh, God came to be one of us. God came to be with us. Let me give you one last point. We'll finish today. God changes us. He says it's not just that He came to be one of us. And it's not just that He comes to be with us. But God comes to change us. And we saw His glory. You'll notice that there is a change in the text from verse 1 through verse 13 when you get to verse number 14 and then it goes to this plural pronoun of we. You see, what is, it that, what is it that the prologue of John is built upon? It is built upon the experiential relationship of the apostles with Christ. And we saw His glory. The word saw here means to look longingly, to look meditatively, to reflect on. That is, when Jesus came into the world, they were awestruck by the glory and the majesty and the goodness of Jesus that the Messiah had come into the world, that He was God, very God, and human, very human, together in one person, that He was wholly different than anybody else that had ever claimed to be Messiah. He was the real deal. He was the promised one. And just like His mother Mary, the Bible says in the book of Luke, chapter number 1, two times, she pondered all these things in her heart and Mary and Martha were sitting at the feet of Jesus and the Bible says that Mary pondered these things. She looked upon Him. She longingly reflected upon His glory. And we saw His glory. Glory here is the visible manifestation of God's splendor. Jesus is the unique and the beloved Son of God sent from God to fully represent the Father on earth and reveal the Father and His plan for salvation in a previously unparalleled way. The Son of God reflects the Father perfectly and perfectly carried out His will. You see here it says, and we, uh, and we saw His glory, and then look at the repetition. The glory as of the only begotten, right? And the word here means, the where it says begotten, it means my unique one, my special one. You see, God has many sons, but only one Christ. He is unique. He is first in stature. He is the unique Son of God. This is the same word that is used of uh, Abraham and Isaac. He had two sons, right? He had Isaac and Ishmael, but Isaac was his monomagay, right? His only begotten, his unique Son through which the promised Redeemer would come. And God sends His Son into the world who is the unique Son of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten, His unique and one and only only son to do what no other son or daughter could do, provide redemption for those who would believe. From the Father. You see where it says from the Father, it is out from Him. And look what it says about His glory. Jesus, full of grace and truth, love and faithfulness, you might, uh, you might take the back end of verse number 14 and you might write off to the side, echoes from Exodus. That's exactly what's going on here, right? When God passed by Moses, who is hiding in the cave, he is described as abounding in love and faithfulness or translated grace and truth. Moses cries out to the Lord, show me your glory. And the Bible says here in 1.14, and we beheld his glory as of the only unique Son of God. 
God gives Moses the tabernacle where His presence will be with His people. And Jesus is now tabernacling with us in His full presence. God in humanity. Not only is the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ through His person, but Jesus reflects the glory of God in His suffering and in His obedience. You can read when you want to John chapter number 8. Jesus uses the word glory many times in that chapter, and the context of the entire chapter is the cross and the obedience of following the Father. And can I say to you, if you want to reflect the glory of the God of heaven, yes, worship God with your hands up, sing with all of your heart, give, do everything, but it comes through living a sacrificial, obedient life to God. If you want to worship God, be obedient to Him, and in so doing, you'll bring glory to Him. He changes us. Quickly now, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll say this and we'll finish. 2 Corinthians chapter number 3. God changes us through the glory of His Son. 2 Corinthians 3. Look at verse number 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding, right, longingly looking as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ resides in those who believe on Him. And He is conforming us by His Spirit to His own image. And so day by day, little by little, with unveiled face as if we behold in the mirror, we are walking more and more and more until we look like Jesus Christ. Have you been transformed this week by any degree? Are you a little sweeter? Are you a little kinder? Are you a little more gracious to people? Do you share the gospel with anybody? Do you find yourself giving love where you would have given hatred? Do you find yourself giving mercy and the benefit of the doubt where you would have stamped a relationship out? Do you find yourself looking a little bit more like Jesus every day, or are you moving in reverse? And the Word became flesh. And He's with us. And He is changing us by His glory. This past week, um, I forget exactly where I was. Just hear me, I'll, I'll finish with this. this last week, I, I forget exactly where I was, but a song came on the radio. And um, it was a catchy tune. And, and I come to find out it's... Uh, somewhere near the top of the charts. And uh, I, I think the title of the song is What About Us? by an artist named Pink. And uh, as I was listening to the song, I, it, you know, you could easily hum along with the song, and then the more that I listened to the lyrics, the more that I realized that it was an atheistic rant against God. That there's billions of beautiful hearts on earth and that you have sold us down the river. And that when you called 
We came, but there was nothing there. And the rage of the song is, what about us? What about us? What about us? The next time you hear that song playing, I hope that you'll remember John 1.14. That God became one of us. That God came to live with us. And that God came to change us. We are not billions of beautiful hearts. We are billions of desperately wicked hearts. So self-centered that we can't even get along with ourselves. And God looks down on us and says, I'll have mercy. And I'll send my Son into the world for you. And I know beforehand that you won't even receive Him. You'll nail Him to a tree. And I'll send Him anyway. What about us? What about Him? That's the kind of love that our God has for us. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes for a moment? If you're in this room today, maybe you're visiting for the first time or maybe you've been here for a long time, but in your heart, you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ whereby you have given yourself over to Him accepted His mercy and grace, and you're following Him. And maybe in your heart you're crying, what about us? What about me? I pray that God would remove the veil from your eyes and that you'd see that Jesus became one of us, that He lives with us, and by His mercy He will transform us. I tell you on the authority of God, trust Jesus Christ now. For my brothers and sisters that are in this room on this fine August morning, are you living with Him in His presence? Are you taking advantage to talk to Him? To delight in Him? I hope this week you'll live in the presence of Christ Jesus. You've been listening to Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh. For more information and free access to other messages, please visit us at ebcraleigh.com.